Hey, this is Jen Page, and you are with the Intuitive Filmmaker Podcast, and I have one of my best friends in the whole world in the studio today. Today, She's an actor, an award-winning film producer, a best-selling author now, <laughs> and a speaker. She gets paid to speak. I am so happy you are here, Jenna Edwards. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. And I really love that she actually brought her own headphones because <laughs> it's yellow and she's totally on brand today. Yeah, yellow is my, my thing. I didn't even plan on my, being, like I'm in all black and you're on all yellow. So I don't know if we're like a Works. bumblebee or if we're just like, you know. But we're, I just feel like I we like match. I like being a bumblebee. We, that, we're great. Like we're just <laughs> productive. Um, I, we were, so... I want to just break right into uh, you have you're just a wealth of insane amount of knowledge. So um, <laughs> to start, when you don't get enough of Jenna today, you can get more of her if you go to her podcast, aggressive po aggressive positive. I was gonna say aggressive podcastism. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's a new project. Yay! Aggressive optimism podcast, um, and it's so great. I love your just Jenna episodes. You just give me so much. Um, they exist because of you. Well, I, when we were at lunch for our birthdays, because we are one day apart, which is pretty awesome, um, you said to me, I said, I'm going to start a podcast. And you were like, you know, I like the podcast that do guests and the host all by herself. And I was like, oh, well, that makes it easier because sometimes it's hard to schedule guests. <laughs> and I do it every weekday. So yeah, you're a crazy thank person. You for that. Well, I mean, an aggressively optimistic person, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, can be considered crazy, definitely <laughs> at times. <laughs> um, so the, even that process of that, um, because so our audience is filmmakers. Hi, filmmakers. And you have produced and we'll get into all of that. But since we are talking podcasts, mm -hmm. I think, and speaking, um, a lot of filmmakers are trying to do that sort of that other thing, that thing that gets their voice out. I mean, look at me. Mm -hmm. I'm starting a podcast. Um, so many podcasts. <laughs> I know. I'm crazy. You're doing like 60 podcasts. What are you talking about? Um, but mine aren't easy. I just get on the air and act like a weirdo. I know. Me too. <laughs> it's the best, right? I think the key to all of that, though, is figuring out your weirdness. Yes. Like and, and embracing it and identifying it. And, and what I mean by weirdness is process and opinion and who you are. I think it takes a lot of self-work in order to do what we're doing. Yes. So I've been public speaking for 30 years. Uh, Which for is free. Because I feel like you're a baby. <laughs> I know we're the same age. But. Well, I started in, in junior high. In speech competition. Yep. Talking to the lockers and practicing your speech and having to go through like all the super nerdy, rural, skinny white boys doing Martin Luther King. And you're just like, oh, oh good Lord. Oh, save me. So I feel like I paid my dues when I was 13 for crying out loud. <laughs> but um, that's besides the point. It's been so interesting because just this year I narrowed down and I niched into high schools and colleges and talking to students and youth. And I cannot tell you the resistance I'm getting from speaking coaches and other people in the industry. They want me to go talk to adults. And I always feel like I'm playing dress up in my mom's clothes when I get into a room in front of adults. Like I can do it but it's so not my passion. Mm -hmm. Whereas like um, this last weekend, I got to sit, uh, not sit, I got to speak in front of 650 youth wow. leaders. It was so cool. It was magical. And I got to have like philosophical conversations with them during the downtime. Like I had literal lunch with two 14 year old boys and we talked about the meaning of life. I mean, I think that's the key, right? We, I, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but 
I feel like once we become adults, the world becomes beige, number one. And like you have to lose your identity in order to have a career for some reason. And we also then become so afraid of new ideas and thinking outside the box. And that's what kids do every single day. Mm -hmm. And so we're afraid of them. <laughs> and I think that we take that fear, maybe conscious, maybe unconscious and stifle them. And I feel like that's just, that's what's going to stop the change. Um, so it, it, it's funny because the first thing I thought when we started talking teenagers, I was like, well, when you're a producer, your, your crew and your directors are kind of like your teenagers. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. I definitely feel like I've had quite the training in my new career from <laughs> producing film. Um, but I think, again, it goes to the key I've noticed with really good directors and actors and crew is self-awareness and the, the knowledge of the fact that the project isn't about them. Yes. Which I think is very similar to how teenagers feel. Like they know that they're just one piece of the machine. Yes. And so I feel like I am just in that world of people who are flipping cool, <laughs> you know? Like I've had really good luck with the filmmakers I've gotten to work with and, and I like you, Aww. I mean, seriously. And because of that, I kind of I have very high expectations. So to be honest, every time I go into a new um, school, I'm just like, oh God, is this gonna be the one that sucks? <laughs> is this gonna be like, I, I can't have this good of luck, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> But everybody's been amazing because you're amazing, amazing. because your energy is infectious. Um, so when you were first producing, yes. I love the story of your first movie. And I know there's like a million stories that go along with it. Yeah. But um, one of my favorites is, you know, sort of how how you're, you got along really well with your director, but you guys had yes. really big, he had very big dreams yes. and somehow you fulfilled them. <laughs> Will you tell well, the filmmakers a little, just a little bit of like, one of my favorite things about yes. you is the like, just ask. Like oh, you have this yeah. lesson of just ask. Absolutely. And I, I you know, yes, people, are, people would always ask me, how did you make this movie? I'm like, we asked. We asked for everything. Um, and sometimes we got it and sometimes we didn't. And when we did get it, it was insane. And so you're talking about April Showers. Yeah, I think so. So the movie is called April Showers, and it was written and directed by a survivor of the Columbine High School shooting. Uh, who his name is Andrew Robinson, and he is one of my favorite humans on the entire planet. I don't get to talk to him enough, and it makes me sad. But which is a lot to say after making a movie together, right? You know, like, <laughs> just like uh, nice knowing you. Enjoy your life. Peace out, guys. <laughs> um, but like, we developed this incredible relationship where he trusted me enough to ask for the sky. So I call it purple sky syndrome, right? It's like you have to, when you're producing, at least in my opinion, be a safe place for the director to come up and be like, I need a purple sky. And then go to work on trying to actually get the purple sky for them. So that when you come back and you say, look, I can't get purple, but I can get magenta. Can you make that work? It's a known fact that they believe that you have actually done the work to try and get them what they wanted. I think that's the key. Well, you are by far my favorite producer I've worked with. <laughs> um, Jenna and I did a show called Wake Up. It was, yes. a, it was a, oh my God, a live to tape TV show, three cameras. Um, I see that you still have the plate, Lisa. I, got yes. Um, lots of high level guests from the sort of spiritual woke world. Um, and Self development world. Yeah, yeah. And it was 
one of my favorite sets ever. And mostly because of how you, like I always felt protected. I always felt taken care of. And as a director, when your producer is not taking care of you, you feel like you're always trying to fight battles to make a film happen. Yeah, I don't understand that. It's hard enough to make a film or a TV show. Why would you make it harder? I mean, to the point where if they had to deliver me bad news, <laughs> she would gather a group of people who I loved and adored, and they would literally walk up and start singing the bad news to me. Tap dancing. You can't be mad <laughs> or stressed when they're singing the bad news to you. I mean, well... Because it's inevitable. Our guest didn't arrive. <laughs> We're making up a new segment. The set is late in delivery. You know, and we don't have a table. We don't have a table. We film in 20 minutes. The table. I can't. I literally can't. Um, so let's kind of break down that. So, like, so I don't know how many of you filmmakers want to direct live television. Um, it's not really a thing that I want, that I aim to direct, but Wow, what a fun experience so it fun. was. Um, I want to do live television. Yes. So any director watching, if you want to do mm -hmm. a talk show, call me. I'm so down, as long as it's shooting at Warner Brothers. It's it's a, it's, a, it's her dream, it's and she'll dream. be an amazing talk show host. Oh, um, but yeah, so it, one of the first things that ever happened was just kind of, we were brought, we executive producers came to us with what's normal in LA, which is not enough money to do the kind of show we want to do so you get all of your friends on you get the best rates you can get you yes. make magic out of nothing um but i mean i think we had fires there to put out constantly but i don't really remember them because you just because made it so smooth we didn't tell you <laughs> well of course because i feel like that's the producer's job i don't understand producers that get in to producing and then think they're the director or like they get into producing and don't understand that they're, I feel like our job as a producer is to protect the director so that they can be creative because that's their job, right? And um, so, yeah, of course we had a ton of fires. I mean, that's just production, but we had an incredible crew who uh, like just jumped in. I probably don't even know all the fires to be totally honest with you, you know, because people just took it upon themselves to take care of things. And it, and they also knew that if they couldn't take care of the thing, they could come to me and I would do my best to help them. But one yeah. of the best parts <laughs> about a live show, I felt the most fun things was the constant changing. So you have a, you would spend our poor, one of our poor writers, Sean. Sean. Deloche, oh, we love you. <laughs> he would spend hours creating segments and then we'd spend hours around the board, getting them all lined up. And then suddenly a guest couldn't come or something had to change. At one point we're like, this guest isn't here. So Jenna, you're going in for a segment. You ready? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so fun. But, um, but I also think that that happens on films too. It's just, different because you can make that up later yeah. like there's no flexibility in the solving of those problems that's just okay the the actor didn't show up today we're gonna move them to Tuesday well it's Tuesday so you know what I mean yeah um but on live shows you have to instead replace them yes and which by the way can be really challenging when you have to explain to the the person that they're no longer needed <laughs> I had to job. I had to have that conversation a couple of times and it's I think probably the most difficult part of the live job was dealing with people's expectations who weren't familiar with the process. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, like the guests they don't know anything about film and television. They're, you know, in their own industry and so 
they would come they would come a half an hour late and we'd be like we shot your segment and they would be like what do you mean yeah and you have to let them down gently because i mean frankly the show was pretty awesome it had jack canfield it had don miguel ruiz who wrote the four agreements and i cried when he signed my book like he's magic i had natalie ledwell who is like a huge person in the self-growth world you know and so like if you got invited to be a guest on this show, it was no small potatoes. So if you're getting turned down because you're late and your car broke down, that's a lot to deal with. And you know? sadly, most of the time it isn't even a car broke down. It's a, oh, we really have to be on time. <laughs> right. Well, we run our sets <laughs> that way. I'm getting the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I, I get I get to that. Like there's probably a lot of people even in this town who get who feel like they can be a half hour late because nothing runs on time, but that's not how our sets run. Yeah. Our sets are ahead of schedule often. Often, <laughs> often. Well, I also think that um, even if you're, even if the the part that they need you for isn't happening then, for me, I'm like, if you're late and I have the opportunity to replace you, I'm going to, because to me, it's just disrespectful to the cast and crew who got there on time. Unless, of course, it is an emergency, like there was a crash on the car. Right. That happened to us. One of the crew members was super late one day because there was a huge pileup on the 405. Oof. And they were almost in it. And I, I, I just, didn't even know. Yeah. <laughs> Dancing. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, actually, I think it was Sean. Oh, really? Yeah. I feel like, anyway. Um, but stuff like that happens. And, you know, you use your best judgment. Like, if they're late and it's a, a valid reason... I will totally be flexible, but if they're late and it's because of their silliness and their themselves, then, I mean, I feel like it's a lesson that we all have to learn. I learned it. I was um, an extra, featured extra in um, Superbad. I know. <laughs> I was a store clerk and as an actor, right? And um, I was late. They were doing insert shots with the like bag on the counter or whatever. And I, it was when I first moved out here and my car was like a piece of junk and it didn't start and it made me like 10 minutes late and they had already shot the insert with someone else's hands. Oh. And which is crushing for an yeah. actor, but also a huge lesson for me. Now I'm like an hour early. Oh, like course. today I text you, I'm like, I'm on my way. You're like, I'm not gonna be ready till this time. Like, it's cool, I'll be in my car reading a book. <laughs> like, that's just the way LA works, you yeah, know? Yeah, for sure. And it's also, it. then you also, if you're a decent human, you feel like a jerk because now you're late and they've had to do something without you. And now you're like, well, they're never going to call me again. Yeah. And if you're not a jerk and you think the world revolves around you, well, trust me, they're never calling you again. Yeah. <laughs> they're more likely to call you if you think they're not going to call you. <laughs> that's for sure. But it is. It's all about energy, right? And it's all about mindset, I feel like, in this town. Talent has very little to do with it at a certain level. Oh, for sure. That's why we hire our friends over and over. We want to be around people who, I mean, in theory, your friends are talented because you're yeah. not going to put somebody terrible yeah, on your cast and crew. Yeah, please don't put somebody terrible on your cast and crew. But we do <laughs> see that a lot. We see people make their films with bad actors because it's their friends, and I don't recommend that. But if no. you surround yourself <laughs> with, with talented, talented people, uh, you always hire your friends first if you can because it, you just know what you're getting and you're going to have fun and it's not. Well, and hopefully you've done enough. Again, the self-work, it's so important. If you've done enough self-work and you value yourself enough, you're not going to hire or you're not going to surround yourself with friends who disrespect you. Right. You know, and I think my rule of thumb is always, can they do the job well Right. Can they do the job well? And do I want to hang out with them in a cornfield in the middle of nowhere for 30 days? 
Exactly. If I get a yes from both, they're probably getting hired. Yes. It's funny how many times I get emailed by crew types just randomly, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a, I don't know, I'm a composer. Here's my stuff. Like, no, hello, I watched your work. Yeah. I, you know, you're another human. I'm a human. Here's what I like about your work. Yeah. Like, there's got to be some sort of connection. Exactly. Meaning, and if you don't have a connection with the person already, then you need to share why you connected with their work. Yes, for sure. And I just, I usually just delete. I've become to a point where I'm so jaded. I <laughs> just delete. I don't, <laughs> don't even be reply. Jaded, Jen. It's all good. Oh, it's happened. It's, <laughs> I know. I believe you. <laughs> I don't even deny it anymore. It's just like, no, no. Um, but you have come from a very interesting background as far as LA goes, because you came here to be an actor from yes. the beginning. Yes, I, I did. I moved from Minnesota and, um, came out here to act and got lucky enough to do that. And I'm assuming you want me to tell the story of the crash. So I'm going to. <laughs> yes. But also like, I think that because I you know you probably get tired of telling this story, no, but I for people mind. who haven't heard it, it's so inspiring. Oh, well, thank I, um, okay, so I came out here to act and I got to be in the last episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So nerds and politics, I should totally be on because <laughs> I am technically a slayer and I am a nerd about it. Um, <laughs> because how cool is that? Oh, I mean, it awesome. was one of my favorite shows of all time and I got to be on it. Yeah. I was like, what? I got to meet Jaws for crying out loud. Um, and one of the saddest moments, and I never shared this with you, I don't think, is that I got a picture with Joss and it was back in the day before social media, obviously, and my computer crashed. No. And I have no picture of me with Joss and it breaks my heart when well, I think about it. You know what though? That means when Joss comes on your talk show. <laughs> Joss, come on my talk show. Let's talk about Buffy. You gotta get a new photo and it'll be super magical. Oh my gosh, so much fun. Um, yeah, he was he's fantastic. Anyway, uh, so last episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I inherit her powers in seven whole seconds of screen time, which in my little actor heart, I used to belittle until I had this experience that I can share later. But um, because, you know, you come out here and you want more screen time, but right, right. I'm so grateful for that seven seconds now. Like it has completely changed my life. But as my naive little actor self thought, oh my God, I was on the last episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Everything's going to change. My life is going to change. I'm going to be a superstar. I have made it. <laughs> I have made it, you know? And uh, about a month after the episode aired, I was buying oranges in Santa Monica when this elderly man drove through the farmer's market and he hit over 60 of us, he hit me at 60 miles an hour. The man standing next to me, along with 10 people, didn't make it. And um, my brain broke, basically. I couldn't read. I stuttered when I talked. Two very, very important skills that you need when you're acting. I mean, forget life. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I thought my career was over. I thought my life was over. I was having flashbacks every day that would send me to panic, that would make me pack, pass out. Um, I ended up not sleeping for eight months and I um, checked myself into the psych ward to regulate my sleep. And I thought, oh my God, how on earth do you make a comeback from this? You know, like this is it. This is the end of all of my dreams. I mean, I dreamt of becoming an actor since I was three years old. It was literally everything I wanted and I had achieved it in seven whole seconds. <laughs> and then it was ripped away, you know? And so 
but I am aggressively optimistic, which is why the podcast is called Aggressive Optimism. Uh, and I found an example of someone who made a comeback. You may have heard of her, Drew Barrymore. Um, <laughs> and I just held on to her story the whole time I was going through all of this because I was like, well, here's an example of someone who has made a comeback or is making a comeback. She was making a comeback at the time. And um, I believed that I could do it too. I had no idea how. I had no idea what the process was going to be. And it took me about seven and a half years before I didn't have a flashback. Wow. Or a panic attack. Um, it took me three and a half years before I could work again. So no stutter and I was sleeping well um, and I could read. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I just started working. And when I came back um, to work, I ended up in producing. So I stopped acting for a good decade. What, what are some of the things that you did or like just your journey to get to the point of like the rock bottom to your working again. And one of them was scrapbooking, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. But, and that, hmm. So there's so many things you guys, first of all, since we're doing video, can I like do an example of how to stop a panic attack? Yes. And those listening, you can go to YouTube and see the video of whatever you're about to hear. Yeah. Because seriously. Okay. So I was in the psych ward. This was eight months. Okay. I was diagnosed with PTSD at a time when laymen, non-military, were not really being diagnosed. When I was diagnosed, the I looked at the, the therapist and I was like, that's ridiculous. I can't have PTSD. I'm not a soldier. Right. That was literally my response. And so denial almost killed me for real. <laughs> um, and so while I, like I was going through therapy, I was doing all of this stuff because I was lucky enough to be on work comp. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to get help because the insurance from the driver only covered, um, it was only enough to cover funerals and intensive care. So those of us who weren't wow. in the hospital or dead, quite frankly, didn't have help unless we had our own insurance and tip for anybody, get the uninsured, underinsured motorist coverage on your policy because it is only a few extra dollars a month and it would have covered me. Wow. Because I was hit by a car. So all that to say, I'm in the hospital after, you know, eight months of therapy, going through all this stuff, clearly a candidate for any kind of PTSD therapy and the nurses didn't know what to do with me when I was having panic. They would just tell me to breathe, which made it worse because then I hyperventilated. It was right. just like such a vicious cycle when you have anxiety. And, and there's also that thing attacks. of like, when you're having a panic attack, someone says, you just need to calm down. <laughs> yeah, that just makes it worse. It really does because then you're like, oh my God, I'm doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm doing it wrong. And then you're panicking more about you doing it wrong. So I, one day, luckily, one of the psych nurses called in sick and a surgical nurse replaced her. And the surgical nurse saw me have a panic attack and she's like, do you know how to stop panic attacks? I'm like, no, you, you could stop a panic attack. <laughs> like totally so excited to talk to her. She's like, oh yeah, people going into surgery have them all the time. They're physical, yeah, not mental. That makes sense. Right? So here's the trick. It works for me every time. I hope it works for you. I would love to know because I've never done this on camera before. <laughs> so I'm really excited. So basically what it is, is your adrenalines are are producing too much adrenaline, your adrenal glands, right? So you ice them. Really? So you put an ice pack right here. Huh. Right here. She's pointing to her neck, sort of, front of neck. Or like, yeah, you take your pointer finger, your thumb finger, down your jawline, 
and make sure you cover the whole front of your neck and lay down for like 10 minutes with the ice on. And then this is the gross part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you take something that makes you burp and you burp the chemicals out of your chest. Interesting. I know. I know. Huh. It's fascinating and it works every time. Weird. At least for me. Um, I hope it works for you too because we oftentimes think it's all mental. I, and I know so many of us at some point in this biz have panic attacks. So, oh, yeah. you know, keep that in your arsenal and please let us know if, you, if it worked. If it, I know, it's such a huge tool for me. And by the way, it works even if you're not having a full-blown panic attack. Just if your chest is tight, try it. Like sometimes just you have that anxiety before mm-hmm. you go to say a networking event, which I get all the time. This is something that maybe I'll try this yeah. to get it out of my head even, you know. Ooh, let me know. Yeah, that's very interesting. It is. I think it also comes as a director, I use a lot of this stuff uh, for actors. I, I use a lot of breath work. Mm. So it's interesting to think about panic attacks being physical because I actually will have actors mimic the breath they feel like if they're, how do you feel when you're angry? How do you feel when you're sad? And just mimicking that breath can make their body have a physical reaction, mm-hmm. whether it's crying or, you know, whatever. So that makes sense. Isn't it fascinating? Yeah. So that was probably the biggest trick I learned and am so grateful for as far as panic. Um, and just a lot of the things that helped me, Tony Robbins. <laughs> and I realized a couple of years ago, I couldn't really understand what he was saying, but the way he said it was energetically what I needed mm, at the time. So I used to just like every day walking for like two hours with Tony screaming in my ear and being like, I know I can overcome this, even though I don't literally don't have any idea what he's saying. It's, you know what? It's very similar to just putting music on, like yes. music that makes you happy, that makes you jump around, makes you dance. It's all about changing mm-hmm. your body's chemistry somehow. Totally. Totally. And I think for me, just knowing that he has helped people overcome a ton of things made me think like, even though I don't really understand what he's saying, like in my brain, I know it's helping. Yeah. You know? Um, And for me, it was more of music. I I needed to feel productive. Yeah. I think because I, I, all of my career was gone. And you guys know as filmmakers, like our careers are our lives. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just is. And so if that's completely ripped away from you, I can't even explain the helplessness. And so I think for me, the things that I tried to do were things that were very active because I felt so helpless with my mind being gone that I needed like physical, logical things in my life. So scrapbooking was a huge one, um, mostly because I felt like I was accomplishing something. Like I had boxes of (laughs) pictures that needed to go into books. Um, So basically like doing things that make you feel like you accomplished something. That makes sense. And that you're saying that it makes so much sense to my brain all of a sudden, because if I'm ever in a down slump, the one thing I always do is go, okay, I got to do something right now. Whether it's go apply for one job, whether it's make a podcast episode, like you do that, do one thing and it starts to bring you out of that rut. Yeah. I think also for people like you and I, since I know you so well, I know this is a thing, like we care about other people. Our motivation is other people. So if we can get our mind off of us. Yes. 
in any way, even if it's submitting a resume, which is technically about us, it's not because we're crafting an email that is about that other person. I'm going to help you make a better movie. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and you know, one of the things when I was going through my sort of the worst of my sickness recently and oh, was feeling down. So glad you're on the swing of that. <laughs> well, one of the things I would do is, me, you know, meditate a lot and use Oracle cards. And one of the th Oracle cards I used to pull all the time was, um, basically be, be of service. Mm. And cause when you're of service, when you're, when you're thinking about other people and how you can serve them, you're not thinking about yourself and your own misery, <laughs> whether yeah. it's a chronic pain, whether it's your careers in the shitter right now, <laughs> whatever it is. Whether the person that was supposed to be a guest on your show isn't showing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just keep forging ahead yeah. and forging ahead. I love it so much. I actually have a cinematographer who sent in a question this week. Oh. So I'm curious if it might line up with what we're speaking. Hi, my name is Nick Conroy. I am a director and director of photography here in Van Nuys slash Los Angeles, California. And my question for you guys is how do I know when something a uh, passion project is worth my time in the sense that there's a lot of, we're all trying to juggle a lot of things out here, a lot of commercial work. How do I know um, when something is worth investing that, that smaller bulk of time that we have to do creative projects? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Love to see what you think. If, if, because it's a passion project, you're probably not getting paid for it. Mm -hmm. So is it worth your time? Is it worth in your mind? Like when I did playing with Beethoven, we had no money, but I knew it was worth my time because I needed to make a feature that was mine beginning to end with no yeah. producers telling me I had to change a cut. Like if it was wrong, if it sucked, it was my <laughs> fault. So I knew it was worth my time. Interesting. Um, I, do, I think it has to do with what your goal is. Yes. And those goals will change from time to time for sure as you grow. But if your goal is to, like my goal right now is to buy a freaking house in Burbank. <laughs> like I need my own house and it has to be in Burbank. That's just what I've decided. And so I can't spend my time doing free gigs. Correct. Because the bank doesn't take art as collateral, unfortunately, unless, you know, it was painted by Picasso. <laughs> but but that's my goal. For a long time, my goal was just to uh, get really cool projects made or learn how to budget really well or, you know, play a certain role or literally learn the producing process as far as distribution is concerned was one of the projects that I took on for no money because I was so fascinated with the new, that's the film we did for Hulu. I didn't get paid for that film. It was a total experiment in what can a filmmaker make by putting their project up on Hulu. And so, then you, now you, but you also have that street cred now of being one of the first films to be up on Hulu. Absolutely. Yeah, the first narrative feature to premiere specifically on Hulu, which is, it, it does definitely open doors, especially Absolutely. if I want to go talk to filmmakers at film festivals. I'm going to be like, look, I'm going to talk to them about, you know, overcoming obstacles to distribution. Here's my resume. So, like, it really, I think, depends on the goal. Absolutely. I think that's a great, great answer. Um, I would love to... Um, have you you guys have no idea how geeking out I am right now so um anybody who's been listening or watching the show already knows that I I love to do oracle cards on the show and partly it's because I love to see where the conversation intuitively goes mm -hmm. um so I want you to put this put your energy into that deck shuffle it up mm -hmm. and pick whichever one calls to you I keep saying I need to have shuffle music I know shuffle 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 
What's that song? Called? I know, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're going to copyright issues. I know. Dang it. Sorry. Except I really sang it badly. So they I know. I don't know. even know what song I was trying to sing. Okay. I want this. Okay. Interesting. Ooh. You pulled the self-sufficiency card. What does that bring up for you when you hear that? I think that that's amazing because it's basically what we've been talking about, right? Like you have to get to know yourself so that you can be self-sufficient in your role. Yes. That's the thing I would say is that oftentimes filmmakers take on all the roles and 98% of the time that I've ever seen that happen, the project fails. Yes. I mean, I hate to be a downer because I'm aggressively optimistic, but the reality is that when you're making a film, you cannot make it on your own. Mm-hmm. And so knowing the things that you're really good at and doing those things and then surrounding yourself by people who do the things that you're not great at. I have a great story about this actually. So my first speaking gig, I'm gonna have it videotaped and the videographer comes and they're like, okay, we can't do sound because it's a huge auditorium. How are we gonna do sound? I'm like, oh, it's cool. I bought a lav mic. I'll plug it into my iPhone. I'm gonna <laughs> put my iPhone in the back pocket and it sounded great. I cannot produce and be the performer at the same time is what I noticed because I forgot to hit record. Oh, oh, the pain. I've been there. I got done with my speech. It was awesome. Everybody clapped. And I was like, fudge. Oh. I totally forgot to hit record. Oh. It hurts. (laughs) So so that's the thing, right? Like I know now when I go to a speaking gig, my only focus is on the audience and delivering the best speech that I can. If there's going to be recording or any of that stuff, I have to bring in an entire team to do it because I'm not good at multitasking in that regard. I think it's so, so hard in this biz yes. to ask for help because you, you, you work so long uh, working for free when you start that you go, I'm never going to ask anybody to work for free. I know, right? And so you don't ask <laughs> for help ever. I also think that it's important to remember what it was like when you were first starting out. And we oftentimes don't meet new filmmakers when we've gotten to a certain level. So I feel like making a conscious effort to go and offer these opportunities to work for free is a great way to shift that perspective. Yeah, You know, like I, I don't know about you, but uh, I know a ton of film students who would love to come and help. Yeah, absolutely. What's also funny is when you, you, there are certain film students who are like, they're too good to, to work for free. They don't want to um, help. They're and, not going to make it very enjoy far in their this lives. town. Exactly. Um, but also <laughs> like there's a, there's a snobbery, I think from certain, like certain filmmakers have, they, they don't want the free help. They don't want students on set. And I am like, if you're willing to come volunteer your time on my set, you get so much more of me back. You can ask me any question. Absolutely. I will take you to dinner. I will like there's that's the give and take of it, I think, of if you do want that coffee date, it's gotta be a give and take. Right. So if you do want Jen to take you to coffee, <laughs> you must volunteer. And the end. And and the funny <laughs> thing is most of the time is I don't even it's like with directors, especially women directors, if they go, um, Jen, I want to shadow you, I go, Okay, yep. Next set, you wanna come? Anytime you want to come. It's just like not even a thing, yeah. you know, and I will answer every question and I'm completely there for you. Um, it's like not even a thing. So ask for help. Well, and I think also realizing that people can say no. 
Mm-hmm. Like it's up to them to say <laughs> and no. And more importantly, that no doesn't, even though I still feel like no is going to kill me, <laughs> yeah, no yeah. is not going to kill me. It's really not. <laughs> it just means that you dodged a bullet and that person wasn't right for your project. Oh, for sure. But like, for example, you know, like you and I did the Don't Silence Me music video. Mm-hmm. That was definitely a, a passion project to go back to the question that was asked and we both volunteered our time and we did it for a very specific reason so I don't know about you but I got paid in hugs <laughs> and the knowledge that I was helping you know put a really important message out so there's different ways to get paid for things absolutely and and when it goes to the passion project too I think it goes to um who's asking because mm. someone like for don't silence me we have somebody like Mari who is the kindest, sweetest soul on the planet? Shout who out. Wants nothing from anybody. You're. It's like she didn't ask me to help her do that video. She just asked for advice, and I said, "No, I'm going to help you do this video, right. and I'm going <laughs> to drag everybody in with us, <laughs> and we're all going to love it. It's totally fine." Well, and that's to my point too of people who don't want to ask people to work for free. We can a say no if we can't do yes. it, right? But also, we had what sixty women volunteer their time yes and I know they got paid in support and their voice and like all of these other ways and not even I don't want to say new friendships there is like a new sisterhood sisterhood that is a great word yeah 100 percent and if we had been afraid to ask for people to come and help us for free that wouldn't exist in the world and it has helped so many people yep. and then everybody who sees that video is helped and everybody mm-hmm. who talks about the video is helped and um, and I've been blessed to not really have to know the depths of how those women feel. Mm. Um, yeah. But just talking about it, my heart yeah. my heart pings because I know how powerful it could be. And that's yes. where I think you decide yes or no, is it worth it? But Because I say no pretty much to anything that's <laughs> volunteer these days. I just, I'd rather play video games <laughs> on my couch. Well, I mean, then that's your priorities, yeah. right? And that's what it goes back to. What's your goal? Yeah. For sure. Like there are different ways to get paid when you're first starting out, for sure, versus when you are established like you are. I just think people shouldn't be afraid to ask. And and when people ask, don't be offended. Yes. I think that's so say, If I say no, it's not it's not personal. It's it's personal for me. Right. It's not, I could love you to death and I'm still like, I I can't. Well, um, I, I, mean, don't, I don't want to, I don't want us to leave without me getting to ask you five very important questions. So if you had to quit showbiz and speaking and writing everything you're currently doing and throw up <laughs> but oh. what would you do oh my god well, wait how much money do i have <laughs> <laughs> let's just say you have money you've made you've, you've i would travel just travel yep. see the world i would see the world um if you could only make one genre of film for the rest of your life well, I would do sitcom, multi-camera sitcom <laughs> Love on it. a soundstage. Love it. Not a film. Sorry. It's okay. That's okay. what you would do. Mm-hmm. And you need to be the star. Absolutely. Or at least the very awesome, you know. Or a talk show. Yes. Something with multi-cameras and a stage and an audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could work with any actor on your next project. Oh, my God. Oh, there's so many. Or should I say act with? Does that narrow it down or it make it harder? Anymore. Oh, All I love it. Yes. All the way. Um, if you could tell your younger self one thing, everything's going to be okay. Oh, yeah. 100%. I'm a heart melt. And finally, if your ultimate dream came true, what are you doing? Oh, I mean, having a show on a, on a set with the audience and multi-cameras. On the Warner Brothers lot. <laughs> on the Warner Brothers lot in what, Burbank, California. Which channel is it on? NBC. 
Wow, she does. This is a woman who knows how to be specific, and that's not just you making that up now. No. You thought this out. There's a whole. Oh yeah, there's a whole thing. Well, we did wake up, and we got the uh, what was the stage just called? Oh my god, I can't remember. But Oprah shot yeah, there. Yeah, Oprah had shot there, and we literally walked in, and I laid on the floor, and I did. I was like, Legend Juice, doing Legend Juice angels. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, it was that was the best set. I hope that the next person's podcast you're on is in the next, within this next six months, and I hope it's Oprah's Super Soul Sundays. You listening, Ope? <laughs> Jenna, thank you so much for oh being God. here. You thank are the you. awesomest. You're the best. You guys are great. Please, if you like what you are hearing, please share with just one friend you think would like it, and we'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to the Intuitive Filmmaker Podcast. If you're enjoying your time listening, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please rate and review as that helps others find the show, which helps us continue to bring you great content. We're also on all of your other favorite podcast apps, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. This show is supported by listeners just like you. Please visit intuitivefilmmaker.com to see all the ways you can donate, including our merch shop and direct donations through PayPal. Thank you for being on this incredible journey with us.